Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Carrie Reynolds, a medical oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and clinical director of inpatient oncology and director of the Severe Immunotherapy Complications Program. Dr. Reynolds, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. I'm just so thrilled that you chose the topics of medical oncology, immune checkpoint inhibitors, and immune-related adverse events. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I think there's a lot to talk about here, so we'd better go ahead and dive right in. I'd like to start off with some questions about immune checkpoint inhibitors, their role in cancer treatment, and managing the complications associated with this newer class of drugs. We hear terms like CTLA-4, PD-1, PDL one just sort of thrown around. So could you start off by telling us what all these terms are actually referring to and how these medications work? Certainly. So immune checkpoint inhibitors have revolutionized cancer treatment in recent years. So they are a good news story. And the first one of these agents was approved for metastatic melanoma back in 2011. So it's really just over a decade. That agent was ipilimumab. But let's go over the terminology and the mechanisms behind how these medications work. So CTLA-4, that stands for cytotoxic T-lymphocyte antigen 4. Now, CTLA-4 is a protein receptor that's found on the surface of T-cells. Then there's PD-1, program cell death protein 1. So PD-1 is another protein receptor that's expressed on T-cells as well as other immune cells. And PD-1 has a ligand, so it interacts with a ligand PD-L1 or PD-L2, and those are proteins that are expressed on the surface of, say, cancer cells or other normal cells. And all of these, CTLA-4, PD-1, PDL one or even you may hear other checkpoints, LAG-3, they are all what's called checkpoints. So if we take a step back and go over the mechanism and think about Immunology 101, so many times a day, our body is trying to decide between self and non-self, right? We don't want to react against self, but yet we do want to recognize, say, the foreign pathogen or the non-self antigen. So a little antigen is presented from an antigen-presenting cell by way of a MHC molecule or major histocompatibility complex molecule. And that antigen is presented up to the T cell, specifically the T cell receptor on the T cell. And that is signal one. However, for the immune system to activate, it's not just one signal. It has to have a co-stimulatory signal or a second signal. Often that is through CD80 or CD86 binding with CD28 on the T cell. And once that co-stimulatory signal fires, then the T cell can be off to the races. So it can start proliferating, secreting cytokines, migrating to the tissue to find more antigen. However, we don't want this unregulated activation. We have to have breaks on the systems. And so that's exactly what checkpoints are. Soon after T cell activation, actually it's fascinating because CTLA-4 comes to the cell surface and CTLA-4 can outcompete that co-stimulatory signal. So it can give an inhibitory signal that actually calms down or quiesces the immune system. So that happens also in the periphery against PD-1 and PD-L1. But cancer has a way of co-opting this. It's been using these checkpoints to evade the immune system. And so in 2011 was that first drug that was approved, and it's a monoclonal antibody designed against the checkpoint. So it's against that CTLA-4 receptor or against PD-1 or against PDL one with the whole idea, if we block the checkpoints, then we can allow the immune system to be activated and that adaptive arm of the immune system can recognize tumor. 
what types of tumors are generally susceptible to these medications? What kind of disease is best treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors? That's a great question as well. And it's changed over time. So we actually have now over 20 types of cancer for what these agents are approved. I told you beginning the first drug was ipilimumab against CTLA-4, and that was metastatic melanoma in 2011. But now these immune checkpoint inhibitors have demonstrated efficacy across a wide range of tumor types. So lung cancer, renal cell, bladder, head and neck, Hodgkin's, and really the list goes on. So it's over 20 types of cancer. And what's also important is it's no longer just approved for, say, metastatic disease. Instead, that would be more stage four disease. But instead, in 2015 was the first approval where it moved to an earlier line of therapy. That was also in melanoma, but we are starting to move these to earlier lines or earlier stages of disease. And that's the case now for lung, bladder, breast, and so on. So I think there are more and more approvals. It's in over 20 types of cancer, and we're starting to move them to earlier lines of therapy. So who are the typical patients who would be best for this therapy when you're counseling patients before starting treatment and offering them options of immunotherapy versus conventional chemotherapy agents? So in terms of who is eligible, really clinical trials have shown the benefit of immunotherapy in a wide variety of settings. So if there's ever a benefit just to immunotherapy, then they are eligible for single or double agent immunotherapy. Whereas if it's immunotherapy and chemotherapy that works best, that is what they are treated with. But we really try to sit down and talk to cancer patients about how this is different from chemotherapy, because many people are familiar with chemotherapy, but it's quite different than immunotherapy. And so chemotherapy has more of a direct anti-cancer effect, whereas immunotherapy, we activate the immune system. So it has more of an indirect anti-cancer effect. And with chemotherapy, unfortunately, especially in widely metastatic or later stage disease, it doesn't last that long. So it has a shorter response. Whereas the anti-cancer effect of immune checkpoint inhibitors can have this durable response. So years and years out, there is six and a half year data out of melanoma that shows us that over 50% of combination patients are actually still doing well. Over 40% are still doing well on PD-1 therapy and in the 20 plus percent for CTLA-4 therapy. So this is years and years out. So a durable response. In addition, for side effects with chemotherapy, we knew exactly what to expect. So we had more of this predictable adverse event timeline, whereas immunotherapy is less predictable. It can happen anywhere from the first three to six months most often, but we have seen these immune-related side effects that are actually much longer than that. So it has more of an unpredictable timeline. And then where chemotherapy, if you stop chemotherapy in the metastatic setting, generally it stops working too. Whereas if you stop immunotherapy, the drug can actually continue to work, which is fascinating because your immune system has been altered. In addition, though, what's important is you could have stopped immune therapy, say, four months ago and still have a side effect of immune therapy because it really kind of continues to work after the drug is discontinued. And the biggest thing to get across to patients is that chemotherapy is really an immunosuppressed state. They always knew they were at risk of infections, febrile neutropenia, so on. But in immune checkpoint inhibitors, the immune system is activated. So it's actually at risk for a whole host of different types of adverse events. So maybe this is a good starting point for us to start talking a little bit about the classification and grading of adverse events directly related to the immunotherapy. So it's a good question when you think about classification and grading of adverse events, because it's such a critical question, because all of our management 
actually directly relates to the grade of toxicity. So just to point out, there are actually four guidelines that we think about when we're managing immune-related adverse events. Those four guidelines I'm just going to highlight right now because I think it's a great reference tool. So the European Society of Medical Oncology, ESMO, actually put theirs in the Annals of Onc by Hannon in October 22. The NCCN guidelines are available as of 2022. ASCO, which is our American Society of Clinical Oncology, Dr. Schneider led a team that's published in the JCO for 2021. And then also there are one other set of guidelines from the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer or the SITSI guidelines led by Brommer in 2021. And all of those guidelines help you. They help you with the workup you might need and they help you with the management. And so they're actually excellent. And even if you got familiar with one of those guidelines, that would be important. But you'll see there, they all base the workup and the management off of grade of toxicity. So grading, there is an available and free and online document called the CTCAE or the Common Terminology Criteria for Adverse Events. And this really classifies the adverse events. It was for clinical trials, but we use it in clinical practice too. And what they are is grade one to five. Grade one is mild. Grade two is moderate. Grade three is severe. And often patients are potentially hospitalized when it's grade three or higher toxicity. Grade four is life-threatening, meaning they needed to be in, say, the intensive care unit. In grade five, we tried to avoid at all costs, that's death. But we use this grading criteria for whatever system may be involved. So if you have a patient that's presenting after immune checkpoint inhibitor with say diarrhea, we would go and look, what is their grade of toxicity? So grade one for diarrhea is less than four stools above baseline. Grade two is four to six stools in the last 24 hours above baseline. Grade three, you're getting up into over seven stools above their baseline, and that's when you know it's grade three. So I hope that contextualized why we think about the classification and grading of adverse events and why that's so important. Is there a generally accepted window or time period after starting ICIs that you should be particularly vigilant about the onset of side effects? For example, immediately after starting therapy or a year out? There are definitely time points that can help you. First, it's rare to have something if they had their first infusion of drug. It's rare to have something in hours or just a few days. So that is really, really uncommon. The only thing we see in that setting is sometimes in a very small minority of patients, we see an infusion reaction to the actual drug, like you see infusion reactions to other therapies. But it's really uncommon if it's just, oh, they got their checkpoint yesterday and they're here with diarrhea. That would be really quite uncommon. So the median for cardiac presentation, so myocarditis, which is one to really know about, is about four weeks after presentation. So that's when it peaks. For neuro, it's about six weeks. For GI, it's about six to eight weeks after the start of therapy. And then the endocrinopathies, the liver, the renal, that's more the three to four month range that it peaks. So you can honestly safely say that most of them present within the first six months and even within the first four months. The only problem is that we have seen the latest presentation is three years out after the start of therapy. And we've definitely seen them outside that six month window. So in the right context, you really still do have to use your diligence. But most of them are really in the first four months or so that they peak for the toxicity. So when we're thinking not only about the grading of these adverse events, but also how we're now going to approach therapy, what does a highly effective immune checkpoint inhibitor multidisciplinary team look like? So that's also a really great question. So I guess I would probably just hearken to what we 
have created at the Mass General Cancer Center. So it was really 2016 when we started to notice there was an increasing number of patients that were having severe immune-related adverse events to checkpoint therapy. Now, those drugs had been around since 2011, but it was just by that time we were using more drugs and more types of cancer and really starting to see an influx of patients. And so at that time, we actually sat down and thought about all the organ systems that are necessary when we think about what these drugs can affect. And it really is across the gamut. So it can be the endocrine organs. It can be the heart. It can be lungs. It can be GI toxicity, renal, skin, joints, you name it. So we really went around 10 different divisions of medicine and thought who would be willing to partner with us in seeing these patients and learning more about them. It was 10 different divisions and six different departments because it really does affect a wide variety of organ systems. And so together as a team, we created the Severe Immunotherapy Complications Service, and we see all patients since October 2017 with this team. So if they are inpatient, we actually round on them, or if they are outpatient, we've set up urgent immune-related adverse event clinics so that they can get that subspecialty care they need. But we knew the clinical care is important, but in order to really figure out what might be driving these, we have to partner with basic scientists. So Dr. Chloe Villani at the MGH leads uh, our single cell genomic center and her and about 15 different other scientists actually sit side by side the clinicians so that we can really try to figure out what might be driving these immune related adverse events. But this team is critically important. It's a hybrid team. And just to give you an example of what that might look like, there is one overlap syndrome to be aware of in these patients. And that is someone that comes in and they may have myocarditis, so inflammation of the heart myositis, inflammation of the muscle, and that can actually also overlap with a myasthenia-like syndrome. And so in a case like that, we would have the oncologist see that patient, but for the discussions about the myocarditis, it would be our cardio-oncologist, and then discussions about the myasthenia would also be our neurologist on the team. So you can see how these joint multidisciplinary opinions are needed as we develop the best plan for the patient. That makes a lot of sense especially since the organ manifestations can be so diverse, I think it might be a good opportunity for us to try and bring all of this together by discussing a case. I know I learn best when I'm faced with a patient that I'm taking care of. And so Dr. Reynolds, maybe I can give you a brief case and you can give us your initial impressions of how you'd approach it, keeping in mind the multidisciplinary approach and the classification and grading of these events. We have a 32-year-old male with metastatic melanoma and he's been receiving ipilimumab and nivolumab for a few months. He has new symptoms of nausea, lethargy, and is generally just not feeling well. His vital signs are all within normal limits, and his sodium's a little on the low side at 131. Jeff Reynolds, where would you start in working up this patient? So that's a good case because honestly, you have these nondescript symptoms kind of vague, and that is often how patients do present. But I think when you have that case, you have a 32-year-old male, you said, he had metastatic melanoma, and he was receiving both ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor, and nivolumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor. So important in your case, I would say, is that he had dual immune checkpoint inhibitors, so meaning two therapies. We know from a great review by Arnold Coffin, where they really looked at 35 randomized clinical trials and 16,000 patients, and they looked at how often do patients get toxicity. And for patients that may get severe toxicity for PD-1 agents alone, it's about 14%. For CTLA-4 agents, it's about 30%. 
But if people have combination immune checkpoint inhibitor, like your case, it's upwards of 55% of patients. So my suspicion for a patient that comes in with those vague symptoms is that he may be having an immune-related adverse event. So I'm hearing lethargy, I'm hearing generally not feeling well, maybe some nausea. If we took those cases and we thought about all the organ systems that might be involved, we have to think, does this represent hepatitis and look for LFT? Does this represent nephritis and check the creatinine? Does this represent myocarditis? Have to look at the troponin. Does this represent a hemolytic anemia that he's developing and have to look at the CBC? We have to think, is that lethargy have to do with just overall weakness? And so could this be a case of myositis? So check CK or even myasthenia or some of the neurological conditions. So we have to have a broad mind when we're thinking about that lethargy or fatigue. And even some people describe that lethargy or not feeling well, and it's actually shortness of breath. So a pneumonitis also has to be on the list. So you can see how I'm really thinking about all these different organ systems. But in a case like yours, the issue that rises on the highest side, especially that he has hyponatremia, is, is this an endocrinopathy? And partly because ipilimumab can have about 10% chance of having an endocrinopathy. And that endocrinopathy can be hypophysitis. So in a case like that, I think about hypophysitis, thyroiditis, new onset type 1 diabetes, or even the rare primary adrenal insufficiency. So I hope it shows you the gamut of what we would think about for labs and next steps in workup, and then really focused on the endocrinopathies. I believe that there are a few nuances when it comes to if the concern of hypophysitis is in play around the replacing of cortisol prior to replacing the thyroid. Is this something that you encounter regularly? It's one of the key teaching points. I'm glad you brought it up because of the fact that really replacing the cortisol access is incredibly important before the thyroid. Let's take a step back. So hypophysitis is inflammation of the pituitary gland. And if we recall back in medical school, so the pituitary gland really secretes this multitude of hormones. So we have ACTH, right? That's the driver of the cortisol access, TSH, which is driver of the thyroid access. And then there's also LH, FSH, GH, and so on. And if we think about central hypophysitis, actually that nothing is being produced like it should be. So the ACTH is low and the TSH is low. So both of those access, the adrenal and the thyroid are affected. And when we're working this up, so we think the morning cortisol level is really key. So morning cortisol tests and looks at the function of that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, so the HPA access. And we know that's responsible for regulating the body's response to stress, so the cortisol access. And we generally test that morning cortisol level because cortisol follows this natural circadian rhythm, and it's the highest levels that occur in the AM. And often we do 8 a.m. cortisol and we do an ACTH stimulation test, but it's a diagnostic procedure to really make sure that the adrenal glands are functioning. And so then the issue that comes into this thyroid, you often see low TSH, so you can have a hypothyroid state as well as adrenal insufficiency. And if we go to replace the thyroid access first, the issue is that metabolic drive can ramp up. And what can happen when you're adrenally insufficient or just on the borderline is you can actually drive an adrenal crisis. And so that's why it's really important that the cortisol replacement is first. Cortisol is very time sensitive. It decreases that risk of adrenal crisis. And then once the adrenal function is stabilized, we can replace the thyroid hormone. 
And in a uh, real life situation, is this a case where you'd bring in an endocrinologist to consult with you? So it's a really good question, honestly. So for many of the oncologists now that have been treating so many of these cases, the basic labs that I talked about to rule out hepatitis, nephritis, myocarditis, chemolytic, or pneumonitis, or even the endocrinopathies, we run the basic labs before we involve the endocrinologist because of the fact that then if there are abnormalities and it is not clear cut, that's where we connect to the specialist, but we don't send them in advance because unfortunately, so many of our patients have nausea, lethargy, generally not feeling well, that endocrinology would be overwhelmed. That makes sense. Speaking of cortisol and hormone replacement, what role do steroids play here in treatment? So in general, for immune-related adverse events, again, these are itises that occur in various organ systems across the body, steroids are the backbone currently. So the guidelines, back to those four guidelines that I talked about, will really document starting steroids for almost all conditions that reach grade two or higher, with the exception being endocrine. So what we just talked about in terms of hypophysitis, we do not use higher dose steroids. We just replace the adrenal axis and we use thyroid. If it's that hypothyroidism, we just replace the thyroid axis. If it's type 1 diabetes, we just replace with insulin, but we do not for the endocrinopathies use higher dose steroids. Whereas across the board in the other types of itises, oftentimes when they're grade 2 or higher, you see anywhere from 0.5 to 2 mix per kg of steroids. So if it's a 70 kilogram individual, that could be anywhere from 35 to over 100 milligrams of steroids a day. And steroids really are the kind of backbone or the gold standard. So how do you decide when and if it's safe to restart immune checkpoint inhibitors once somebody has experienced a serious adverse event? Excellent. So let's talk about this a little bit about when is it safe to resume immune checkpoint inhibitors? One thing to note is that with the endocrinopathies, again, they're special in a couple different ways. We don't use high-dose steroids. We just replace the adrenal access. In addition, with the endocrine organs, we know we have those hormones to replace, and so we can keep going with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. It's unlike some of the other conditions where in a grade two or higher immune-related adverse event, we really have to stop, figure out what the condition is, and then consider resuming treatment. We usually consider resuming treatment in the mild or moderate immune-related adverse events when the prednisone taper is down to 10 milligrams. We didn't talk about this, but when we start the patient on steroids, it's daily steroids. And often for a lot of those immune-related adverse events, the guidelines show that we should decrease those steroids by about 10 milligrams every five to seven days. So it could be two months of steroid treatment in some cases, but when they get down to less than 10 milligrams of prednisone, if they're doing well, if the immune-related adverse event is resolved, then often we can restart. There are circumstances where we are very cautious and we don't necessarily restart, and that's in more of the life-threatening immune-related adverse events. Just so that you guys know, cardiac and neurological are the two most common categories that have the highest risk of fatality from their immune-related adverse events. So sometimes those patients are not restarted on therapy. And it becomes this sit down across the oncologist and really think about what is the framework to re-challenge this patient. So when we think about response, is the patient having a good response? If that's the case, maybe we can just hold and rescan and get as far away from the immune-related adverse event as possible. Two, what level of immunosuppression are they on? Are they down under 10 milligrams of prednisone? Were they so refractory of a condition that you needed a second line or even a third line immunosuppressive? 
that would be more concerning for a patient that needed to restart therapy. The third thing we think about is what was the severity? Was it life-threatening in the first place? Then that we would take more caution with. And do they have any other options? Could we hold off on immune checkpoint inhibitor right now? And do they have any options for, say, chemotherapy or targeted therapy? So these are very nuanced discussions on when to safely resume the ICI. That's super helpful to know. Are there patients who should just never have immune checkpoint inhibitors or who may not be the best choice for this therapy due to pre-existing conditions or other concerns? So this is tricky because some of these patients have no other options, but there are specific patient populations where we don't have a lot of data in and we have a lot of concern in. So what are a couple of those populations? Well, one of them would be people that have uncontrolled autoimmunity. So let's say a patient at baseline has myasthenia gravis that is not well controlled on multiple medications, has flares commonly. The concern is if you gave an immune checkpoint inhibitor, you could really tip that person over into a myasthenic crisis and death. And so uncontrolled autoimmunity is high on the list for being very concerned and shouldn't probably have an immune checkpoint inhibitor. In addition, patients that have had organ transplants, so especially in organs that are really vital, so a cardiac transplant, a liver transplant, the concern is that you would induce in a rejection that could lead to death. And so those are a couple of the patient populations, I think, where we are most concerned. But I do want to let you know that we have a lot of people that we have studied with, say, organ dysfunction. If it's kidney dysfunction, liver dysfunction, they still do okay on checkpoint. Other conditions like HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, it's still safe to give those people checkpoint. And these case-by-case decisions are really trying to get as many people the therapy that they need because this really has changed the game when we think about the response to the cancer response. That makes sense. I guess terminology question that comes up when reading through oncology notes is TPS. Could you demystify this abbreviation for us and tell us why it's important? So TPS is tumor proportion score. And so this is a biomarker. So it represents the percentage of tumor cells underneath the microscope in that, say, given tissue or that biopsy sample that express PDL1. So it's typically done by immunochemistry and it's testing the amount of PDL1 expression on the cancer cells. So less than 1% of the cells express PDL1. That's thought to be really no expression. If it's over or equal to 1%, that means they're PDL1 expressing. And if it's over 50%, that's high PDL1 expression, meaning over 50% of the tumor cells express it. Honestly, though, in some cancers, it's been shown to help predict the likelihood of response, but not in all cancers. So the higher the value means more likely to respond, but this is quite complex, I'm not going to lie, because it depends on cancer type and certain drugs have a specific TPS value that's required to give immune checkpoint inhibitors while others do not. And it also we factor in other biomarkers. And there are a lot of things that play into each decision for treatment. It's quite nuanced, but the TPS is tumor proportion score or basically trying to understand what is the expression of PDL one that makes sense. So at this point, if you've got any other words of wisdom for those of us who will be taking care of patients who are on um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, which as it goes, gets increasingly common, might very well be all of us. Sure. First, I think complexity, we would look at it is it's fascinating. It's interesting. There are so many questions to study and the work is endless in oncology. So we hope all of those listening start to think about a career in oncology. But for little clinical pearls to think about immune-related adverse events, I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you made it to this far, I just want to commend you because mostly it's about awareness and thinking about it. What are the 
immune checkpoint inhibitors. And oftentimes there are now 11 approved agents. And so it's really critical, I think, that you just look up if they've been on cancer therapy. Are one of these drugs related in this class of drugs, the immune checkpoint inhibitors? That's ipilimumab, trimilumab, atezolizumab, dervolumab, avolumab, relatlimib now, and then redifenlimib as well. So just trying to look at the patient's history and see, are they on a drug and could this be an immune-related adverse event? And can I go back and check the guideline for how to think about working that up or managing it? In addition, my clinical pearl, it would be if you see one, look for another. We know that in almost 40 to 50% of patients that present with, say, myocarditis or pneumonitis, they actually have multiple organs involved. And so just looking for that multi-system toxicity is important as you think about your workup and in the management of what could be multiple toxicities. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reynolds, for coming to talk with us today about immune checkpoint inhibitors. I know I learned a lot. And as you said, important to just have a general awareness of what's happening and what our patients are on and be more comfortable with the terminology. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks for the invite. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Dr. Reynolds for joining us today to discuss immune checkpoint inhibitors and their adverse effects. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational materials. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave us a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at mjm.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you're interested in participating, please email resident360 at mjm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM editor, Dr. Opie Hemnick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of the NEJM.